Greetings from the Classic City. I am Jamie Cheek, and this is 2020. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. We have what I think is going to be a very interesting episode. So we're going to start by just running down uh, a little bit about the GOP convention from last week. I don't feel like anything truly spectacular happened. And, you know, with a little bit more time, to me, the only truly interesting or relevant thing that I feel like happened over both conventions was President Obama's speech on Wednesday night of the Democratic convention because Trump and Pence both gave fine speeches. There was nothing wrong with them. I don't think there was anything spectacular about them. And I think now with a little perspective, that's how I feel about all four candidate speeches. So Biden, Harris, Trump, Pence, that none of them really said very much. You know, there was nothing in my opinion, that would be looked at as newsworthy. There was nothing uh, that was really controversial. I know a lot of people have been getting up in arms about the fact that uh, the social distancing wasn't observed at Trump's speech, the fact that they had people out on the lawn of the White House um, while he was giving his speech, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, it's not that it's not important. I think, you know, those things to me do have some relevance, and I I don't think there's anything wrong with talking about it, but I feel like the fact that that's all that's being talked about is pretty indicative of the fact that the speeches themselves and the conventions themselves really did not have any news uh, or any kind of interesting thing happen. So we're talking about all of these tertiary issues rather than any kind of large developments in the race in general. So rather than spending a lot of time just kind of going on and on about that, we're going to jump in today to our added value report. And so uh, the added value report this week is all about re-election. So as I was kind of digging in and thinking about this week, and and, and I'm going to make a big circle here, and we'll, we'll circle back around to the conventions to finish this up. But as I was thinking about the conventions and just the different tones and tenors and everything, the, the big thing that I've been really thinking about over the last few days is the fact that it's really hard to beat an incumbent president. And so that was the thought that was going around in my head. And so I looked up some information and found out that I uh, I was very right about that. It is very hard to beat an incumbent president. So hard, in fact, that since 1900, it has only happened three times. Only three times has a president run for a re-election and lost. And in each of those three times, Uh, or at least in two of those three times, something extremely significant was going on in the country. And then that third time, there was multiple factors going on. So let's let's talk about a little bit the three times since 1900 that sitting presidents have lost their bid for re-election. In 1932, Herbert Hoover, the Republican, lost his uh, re-election bid to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And obviously, that was in the middle of the Great Depression. The stock market crashed in October of 1929, which would have been basically about 10 months into President Hoover's uh, presidency. I think if you look at Hoover in general, and I'm not going to get into a lot of detail, but just speaking kind of generalities about each of these three situations. If you look at Hoover in general, the, the issue was not he created the situation that caused the stock market to crash. However, since the fact that that happened in 29 in his first year as president, and then by the time he comes around for re-election, things were just getting worse and worse and worse. 
I think the country basically looked at it and said, okay, there's no way he's going to get us out of it. We might as well try this new guy. And obviously Franklin Roosevelt comes in with the New Deal, uh, also bolstered by World War II uh, down the line. And that is eventually how America comes out of the Great Depression and then obviously begins to thrive in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, at least from a uh, economic standpoint. And then, you know, obviously things on the world stage wasn't uh, wasn't as great during that time. The, the second time that it's happened, so 1932 in Herbert Hoover, 1980 in Jimmy Carter. So obviously the Iran hostage crisis was kind of, you know, if, if you're doing a history class, that's the one you, you kind of focus on. Inflation and the economy was also in a very terrible place under uh, – Carter. But then by the time the hostage crisis starts, Carter is unable to uh, to work anything out with Iran to get the hostages home. Uh, and, and people were just completely turned off. Now, the fact that Carter was even present to start with probably had a lot more to do with the fact that he beat Gerald Ford, who had pardoned Richard Nixon coming out of the Watergate scandal. So he, he being Carter, beat a unelected Gerald Ford as far as uh, his presidency. Uh, that's why I did not count Ford as a sitting president who was running for re-election. He was never actually elected for president. So I guess you could add that in there, but then that kind of just, it, again, it kind of goes to the theme of Watergate. But for Carter, uh, his presidency was all about the fact that he seemed like a trustworthy guy, which I think he probably was. He seemed like the complete opposite of Richard Nixon. He wasn't polished. He wasn't, um, you know, uh, uh, the normal politician that we were used to at that point in the nation's history. And in a lot of ways, I think you could draw some parallels between Jimmy Carter and Donald Trump. Now, some people may think that's insane, but I think just the fact that they were different is, is a big piece and, and something that kind of ties those two together. But Carter runs uh, for reelection in 1980. He actually got primaried by Ted Kennedy. He ends up beating Ted Kennedy in that primary, but then he just gets absolutely obliterated by Ronald Reagan and proof that the hostage crisis was such a kind of defining piece of the Carter legacy is that the day that Ronald Reagan is sworn in, the hostages are released. So uh, there's a lot of politics. There's a lot of other things going on in there, but there was a it was a pivotal point uh, in our nation's history, the Iran hostage crisis, and that was kind of the 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 cherry on top of the defeat, if you will, for Jimmy Carter. The third time, which is not as, as clear cut and dry, is George H.W. Bush in 1992. And so in that situation, rather than having a singular monumental piece of history that was happening uh, at that time, there were a lot of things going on. And I've read uh, a great biography on, uh, on the first President Bush just one of the most accomplished and interesting presidents we ever had, who was frankly probably one of the more underwhelming presidents we've had, not because of his personal intelligence or ability, but he just he wasn't super effective as president. And again, a lot of different reasons for that. We'll kind of review a little bit now. The economy, again, the economy had taken a dip in the last year before the election, and so often people choose to vote their wallets, if you will. And so uh, he had made a pledge during the his, his nominated convention in 1988 that there would be no new taxes. When the economy started struggling, he in fact did uh, sign a bill that uh, 
it was a small tax increase, but it was a tax increase. That prompted Ross Perot to jump into the race, which split the uh, conservative base a little bit. Uh, well, not a little bit, a lot. But then the other factor that you had to consider was that Bush had been vice president for eight years under Ronald Reagan. And really, a lot of people look at that election of 1988 and, and see it more as a third term of the Reagan pre presidency rather than Bush being his, his own man. And so, you know, in 1989 into 1990, you had the Soviet Union breaking up um, and the end of the Cold War. And there was just there was a lot going on in the world, but it made a lot of sense in 1992 with the economy, you know, waning, even though the Iraq war, the first Iraq war had had finished up and uh, America had been able to go in and take care of Saddam Hussein and free Kuwait from its occupation. All of these good things happened under Bush's presidency. But in a lot of ways, his presidency just kind of gotten eaten up by, OK, We've we've had this same kind of voice and this same kind of present through the entire 80s and, and into the early 90s. And we'll talk about in a few minutes the men that that kind of ended or beat these presidents uh, for reelection. But it made a lot of sense with all of those smaller factors, how it added up to Clinton winning in 1992. So we've we've established that you it's very, very difficult to beat a sitting president for re-election. And you kind of start thinking to yourself, okay, so why is that true? It's definitely true, but why is it true? And obviously this is a, a more of a matter of opinion than fact, but I'm, I'm going to kind of throw out my thoughts as I've been working on this over the last couple of days. And I think it's just, it, it's ingrained in America and in Americans that we are exception, that things are always going to get better and that things are going to move forward. So if you think about it, in the 1700s, 13 colonies declared independence from an empire, went to war for their freedom and won it, and then established a completely new form of government. And by 1800, there were 16 states in the United States of America. The 1800s, from a big picture standpoint, were defined by manifest destiny in this country. The concept that America was to rule the, its continent from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. So in 1800, there's 16 states. By 1900, there's 45 states. In 1800, Tennessee is the western border. Tennessee and Kentucky are the western border of the United States of America. And by 1900, see the shining sea. Atlantic to Pacific, the entire continent was American. And then over the next hundred years, in the nineteen or in the nineteen hundreds, America moves from this growing nation to a world power, helping win two world wars in the process, economy booming, and by the end of the twentieth century, by the year two thousand, America is the only superpower left in the world. The, the concept of American exceptionalism, I believe, is ingrained in our country's identity. And that concept is something that lends itself towards presidential reelection. And, and let me explain why. To beat a sitting president, what you have to do is convince Americans 
that things are bad and that they are going to get worse if a change is not made. So if you think about what that means is it it means you have to be pretty negative. You have to be pretty negative in the things you talk about. You have to take a negative view on pretty much every issue uh, that is that's coming up. You have to paint a very bleak picture, not just of that present day in America, but then you have to paint a bleak picture of what things could look like moving forward. And one of the aspects of the American dream is that our kids are going to have a better experience than we had. And that is a, a generational thing passed down from generation to generation that it's going to continue to get better. So when you have somebody that is proposing to be the leader of the country, no matter what the party is, this, this goes beyond party, obviously, if it's only happened three times in 120 years. It goes beyond party. It's not a Republican or a Democrat thing. It is a American thing that people don't want to be told that it's bad and it's going to get worse and it's not going to be as good for our kids as it is for us. So while you have the challenger for the presidency having to paint this very bleak picture, having to try to convince Americans of how bad America is at that very moment, the incumbent gets to do the opposite. No matter what's actually going on in the country, the incumbent gets to stand up there and say, hey, we're moving forward. You know, and, and at that point, the conversation can kind of go one of two ways. If it hasn't been great, there's some acknowledgement, but then there's also, hey, but we've turned a corner. We're going we're gonna to continue moving. We need to stay the course. If things are going well, the, pres the president gets to stand up there and just say, hey, are, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And I think that was a Reagan thing from 1984 of, you know, aren't I doing a good job? Aren't you happy? Don't you have more money in the stock market up? Aren't your kids just a little bit happier than they were four years ago? So the, the president gets to talk about how great everything is because they're selling you on what they've done, whereas the incumbent has to try to convince you that everything is horrible. And just by our nature, Americans don't like to hear that everything's bad, whether they are or not. Nobody wants to hear the negative. Everybody likes the rosy and positive outlook on anything. And so it just lends itself that Americans would want to hear the more positive message and that they would buy in to a more positive message. And so I believe that is what we've seen over the last couple of weeks at the convention, the reality of the Democratic convention. And, and I want before I, I was going to say this after I kind of made all these uh, comments and kind of put everything in perspective. I think maybe it's important to move it up and say it now. It doesn't matter. When we're talking about politics and we're talking about messaging, I am not insinuating that anything is true or not true. Okay, we're just talking about messaging. And if you are listening to this podcast and you go to politics for truth, then you've missed the point entirely. If you're looking for your politicians to give you facts, if you're looking for your politicians to tell you the truth, you are asking to be lied to. And uh, that is a very dumb way of living life, at least in 2020. So now moving back, context of all of this. During the Democratic Convention, as I said, you had the president coming out and being, or you had former President Obama coming out and being very harsh and very bleak. He did offer a little bit of hope, but the reality of, of the picture that he painted of America to me was the most uh, dramatic and the most negative that I've ever heard a president past or present, 
speak of. I mean, he painted a very, very dark picture of the country right now. And it was, that whole convention was dark. It was negative. It was focused on how bad the pandemic is, how bad it's continuing to be, and how awful race relations in this country are and are going to continue to be. Juxtapose that with the GOP convention last week, where they talked about a resurgent economy. They talked about hope for the future. They talked about the fact that the virus is starting to be controlled across the country. Now, which one of those messages, when you really think about it, it, I'm not asking you to tell me which one you agree with, but which one do you want to listen to? Which one do you want to spend four days thinking and talking about? Hey, things are about to get better? Or, hey, things are awful, and if you don't vote the right way, they're going to stay awful, and they could potentially even get worse. You know, I know for me, I every time I see a news story come out about a potential vaccine, every time I see anything about numbers going down, that's encouraging. When I see that numbers are going up, obviously, you just kind of get stuck in this really down and sad place. And it doesn't mean that... The facts are not the facts. You know, it just because somebody comes out and says, hey, there's a potential vaccine. That doesn't mean that this is going to be over in a month or two. But there's something that happens personally inside of me that's like, oh, okay, good. We may be closer to the end of this than we are to the beginning. And I think when you're thinking about this presidential race and you think about the circumstances that are going to lead up to the the election, obviously, in November, but then when you try to kind of take a step back, and this is the hardest thing to do, not just in America, but just in general, when you take a step back and you think, okay, historically, how are we going to be thinking about this election? You know, Democrats would say that we're going to look at this back on this election, and we are going to see that this was a referendum on President Trump, and that the country completely and totally, you know, rejected Trumpism. Whatever that will end up meaning, that's going to be, they would tell you that's what this election is going to be about. Whereas, obviously, the Republicans would look and tell you, well, what it's going to be is it's going to be an affirmation that President Trump brought us through a dark time in the country and let us, and it's led us back to prosperity, back to a thriving economy. That's what they would tell you the historical context is going to be. For me, when I look at this, no matter what happens, I think that what you're going to end up seeing is America is America. So either we will see this as a transformational time in our country and the time that things pivoted, whether it's away from Trumpism, whether it's away from, um, you know, all out capitalism, whether it's away from just kind of this moral republicanism that started with uh, <laughs> that started with Ronald Reagan in 1980. You may see that that is a pivot away from that or. What you may look back and recognize is the fact that in a time that is very, very dark and very, very negative, where our lives have been disrupted in a way that they never have before, at least in our lifetimes, that America chose a more positive outlook for the future. Whether or not those people were right, whether or not what the president is selling is true, we may see that America, the concept of American exceptionalism, the concept that things are going to get better, is really the tone and the tenor that the, pre, that the country was looking for during this presidential election. Now, in a lot of ways, I can see how President Trump fits the MO of these three 
previous presidents who lost their reelection bid in the last 120 years. So if you think about Trump, you know, things economy-wise, they were going great. And I do think that's one piece of the Republican platform that they did a pretty good job of explaining in the convention is that, hey, the economy's in the crapper right now, but it's due to the pandemic. It's not due to any policy that President Trump put in because before the pandemic, the economy was great. And we talked about early in the podcast, before the political shutdown that kind of coincided with the country shutdown, we talked about the fact that if the president was going to get reelected, it was going to be on the back of the economy. So in a lot of ways, I think what you recognize here is that, you know, the economy was going great, but it's not going great now. And in all three of those situations, the economy was down when the election happened. So I think that's that's one kind of trend. I also think in each one of those three situations, there was a level of tone deafness by the president running for re-election. I think his understanding in each of those three situations, Carter, the first George Bush, and Herbert Hoover, I don't think people in mainstream and just normal Americans felt like the president felt the same way that they did, whether it was, you know, obviously the depression, there was just deep and historic poverty in this country. But then Iran and in 1992, none of those guys were able to make normal everyday Americans feel like they could really connect. And I think the most visceral of that like tone deafness happened during uh, the 1992 campaign. George H.W. Bush very, very famously during one of the debates got caught on camera checking his watch as if he had somewhere else that was more important to be. Meanwhile, Bill Clinton did a wonderful job in the debates and then all the way through the campaign of seeming like a regular guy from Arkansas, okay? And I mean, he was a Rhodes Scholar, right? But Hey, I'm just a regular guy from Arkansas. I think like you. I talk like these people down here in Arkansas. He did a wonderful job of seeming normal. So in this situation, I think you could kind of look at that and say, okay, that's what Biden is working on. He's working on just normal Joe, regular Joe, literally just a regular Joe. And so I think there is a chance with the president coming out and saying, hey, things are good. I think you can definitely have a backlash to that where even though that's where most people like to hear, they want to hear that things are good and that things are going to get better and they want to be optimistic. You have to be very careful not to completely seem disconnected from what's going on in America. Because if you come out and say everything's great, it's easy to look at that and go, hey, things aren't great here. Things aren't great in my house, whether it's economically whether it's, you know, pandemic wise, you know, we're about to get into, I know for me here, I live in Athens, we're starting school next week and it's going to be online. And so I think you have a lot of parents who are dealing, you know, and and a lot of teachers, a lot of just people who are dealing with the, the in your face aspects of this pandemic that have changed our day-to-day lives that have made getting our kids educated more difficult. It's made getting to work and doing our jobs more difficult. So you have to be careful not to tell everybody, hey, everything's great, and have them sit there on their couch thinking, no, it's not. This isn't great. This guy doesn't get me. This guy doesn't understand where I'm at. Because to me, that's the the consistent piece of all three of those 
uh, re-election campaigns that eventually fail was a complete and total lack of ability to connect with normal Americans. Now, while Trump fits, in my opinion, the MO of a president who could lose re-election, Joe Biden very much does not fit the MO or the image of the three men who beat those presidents for re-election. So let's jump in there a little bit. So obviously we already said 1932, Herbert Hoover running for re-election gets beat by uh, Franklin Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt, who will go down in history forever as the only man to be elected to the presidency for four times. Franklin Roosevelt, if you knew anybody or know anybody, Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter what they tell you. Franklin Roosevelt is, for anybody that lived through the Depression and through the 1940s, they will tell you he's the greatest president we've ever had. And whether or not that's true, whether or not you truly know or understand or comprehend the history behind Franklin Roosevelt, because there's a lot there. There's a lot of things that he did New Deal-wise that people would look at now and go, whoa, he did what? Like trying to pack the Supreme Court. But the reality is the people that lived through the Roosevelt presidency, and I had a couple of grandparents that, that did this that are actually no longer with us, but they told me greatest president we've ever had. And it was beyond politics because when he became president, their life was really bad. And by the time he was no longer the president, when he died in 1944, uh, their lives were a lot better. And the reality is most people, I think he died in 1945. Sorry about that. Um, most people look at that and say, okay, is my life better or worse today? And if it's better then the president did a good job. And I think for the next 50 and 60 years until these people were telling me this. And, and it's a theme that you'll hear from a lot of people is that Franklin Roosevelt, for better or worse, great president because he pulled us out of the Depression. Now, is it completely factually true that it was Franklin Roosevelt that pulled us out of the Depression? No. But it's also not true that Herbert Hoover caused the Great Depression. But that's our, that's our view of him. So Roosevelt, like him or not... <laughs> He was a transitional and a, a transcendent figure in American politics. Now move on to Ronald Reagan. Man, that's another huge figure in American history. Guy that came in, and what is Reagan known for? If you just think about what you were taught in school and just kind of the narrative around his presidency, Reagan won the Cold War. Cold War started right after World War II. Eisenhower didn't win it. Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, none of these guys won the Cold War. Ronald Reagan won the Cold War. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And then they did. So obviously, Ronald Reagan, greatest president in modern history, right? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> there were a lot of reasons that the Cold War ended when it ended. But again, you had a figure in Reagan who was, I mean, if, if you think about it, there's if you've ever watched Back to the Future, you know, Marty goes back to 1955 and tells Doc Brown that Ronald Reagan's the president in 1985. And Doc Brown says, the actor? Huh. And, you know, kind of scoffs at it. Reagan was, he was an actor. He was able, as president, to go out there and connect with the American people. And whether that was his true personality or persona, a lot of people have said that behind closed doors, he was a very different person. But politics is how people perceive you, not who you actually are in many cases. And Reagan was a transcendent figure in American politics. He came in, and on his first day in office, he ended the Iran Iranian hostage crisis. 
By the time he left, the Soviet Union was in shambles. So he was one of the, and especially in modern history, one of the greatest presidents we've ever had because that's the way we think about it. Even Democrats don't hate Ronald Reagan. And then finally, you get to Bill Clinton, who I think as we get farther away from the Clinton presidency, it's easier to have a better perspective on him. I, I think it's fair to say there's still enough people that have visceral reactions to Clinton, mainly because of the sex scandal and the Monica stuff and everything. But the reality was Bill Clinton was a new kind of politician. You know, you had Ronald Reagan and you had George Bush, two old guys, two guys that were, you know, of that greatest generation. And then you have Clinton, the first baby boomer president comes in. You know, Chelsea Clinton was young at the time. He was young. He was just a different kind of politician. He, he was charismatic and he kind of changed what we thought of as a president. And if you think about the fact that we went from Reagan who, you know, we went from Carter, who was old when he was, you know, I say old, relatively old when he was elected. Nixon had been around. He was a seasoned politician. You know, <laughs> Johnson was around forever. So Kennedy was elected in 1960. He's young, vibrant, Camelot, gets assassinated. Then you have all of these just career politicians. Jimmy Carter had been governor of Georgia. You just had all these career politicians come in, and they were all, you know, relatively old and seasoned and that's how they felt and for you know 20 something years that's the view that you have of what the president is and then in 1992 here's this young guy with a different kind of energy he's on Arsenio Hall playing the saxophone just a completely different type of campaign that he ran a completely different type of way of campaigning and again he wasn't out there trying to convince people that he was the smartest person in the country. He wasn't trying to convince people that he was the most prepared or anything like that to be president. He tried to connect to people on a personal level. They do campaign things where he's, he's jogging. Then there's other campaign things where he's at McDonald's. You know, um, He just came across as a regular guy. And in a lot of ways, even the sex scandal kind of, fed into that same concept. He struggles with the same things that everybody else struggles with. So Clinton changed the presidency from, we want somebody who is seasoned, a professional politician that's going to lead the country in a certain way, to I want a president that I feel like I could sit down and have a beer with. And when you think about it, you go from Clinton to George W. Bush, who absolutely used that kind of persona uh, in his election, then you go to Obama, who, while he spoke in a way that was eloquent, he also really wanted to connect with people, and he, he really tacked on hope and change and all of that, to then, in a completely different way, President Trump, who was not a politician, would tell you he wasn't a politician, and the fact that he had never been elected to anything before in his life when he was running for president in 2015 and 2016 was the reason that people voted for him. They wanted it, it. It's like this shift that has happened over the last 20 years in this nation where we've gone from wanting somebody that we think is qualified and ready to be president as if they are ascending to a throne to. Well, we want the guy from Arkansas that talks plain and, 
you know, he's, he seems like a good dude and stops off at McDonald's to George Bush, who I could definitely see myself sitting down and having a beer with because he, you know, he told us on the campaign trail he used to drink too much. To Obama, who is a man of the people, to Trump, who is, hey, this guy really is just like us. He's really rich, but he's not a politician. We don't want a politician. So in a lot of ways, I, I go through all that to make the point that Bill Clinton changed what we think of as a president in this country. And so he, again, was a transcendent figure. And this is where I think, looking back at history, looking at how hard it is to be a sitting president, this is where I think it is fair to criticize what the Democrats have done this year in, elect, in nominating Joe Biden. Joe Biden does not match that transcendent kind of quality. Okay? Doesn't mean he can't win. Doesn't mean he's not a good guy doesn't mean that he might not be a, a good fit as president right now. Again, I'm not getting into political kind of viewpoints of myself in this, but the reality is you don't look at Joe Biden and, and see the same kind of charisma as you saw with Ronald Reagan in 1980. Now, none of us or most of the people living in this podcast weren't alive, but in 1932, you you didn't see Franklin Roosevelt at this these big ideas, this, hey, we're going to change the way we do everything in this country. I'm going to pull us out of it on sheer will and ingenuity. Joe Biden is not painting that kind of picture. He's not coming with a new deal. And then you definitely don't see Joe Biden when you think about young and energetic presidents like we've had up until Trump when you in that line of Clinton and Bush and Obama. So in a lot of ways, Calling Joe a transitional candidate, as the Democrats themselves have done, is a huge miscalculation, I think, when it comes to the politics of this election. And the closer we get to Election Day, the more and more I think you're going to see this show up in the polling. Just as a keep you interested, here in a few minutes we're going to come back and we are going to talk about some polling numbers that I think are very, very interesting. But if the Democrats fail to beat Trump, now I'm going to kind of speak as a Democrat right now. If the, if the Democrats fail to beat Trump, they will have nobody to blame except for themselves. Because in this time where, like we've talked about before on the podcast, the number one priority of Democrats who voted in primaries was always beating the president. That was it. It's, uh, it was not an issue-based campaign. It was a singular focus, 60 plus percent in every single early primary said the number one issue was beating Trump. And rather than nominating someone who could really light a fire, taking all that Trump negativity to spark a fire that could lead to a political revolution, the Democrats played it safe. They took a guy who was the safe pick. Think about back to early, kind of mid of last year, 2019. There were more than 20 candidates running for president for the Democrats. Among them, multiple women, an openly gay mayor, multiple, pe multiple people of color, and a socialist. Rather than picking any of those either more progressive or historic kind of candidates, the Democratic Party, the party that champions themselves as being progressive, as being the party of change, the Democratic Party didn't choose one of those change candidates. Instead, 
they played it safe and chose a 78-year-old white man who is the former two-term vice president of the United States and who was elected to the Senate three years after Neil Armstrong took a giant leap for mankind. Joe Biden has been in the Senate or was in the Senate from 1972 till he became vice president in 2008. So rather than picking an outsider, rather than even, even if it's not an outsider, even if it's a career politician, rather than picking a candidate who was really offering a stark contrast to what America is today, the Democrats played it safe and chose Joe Biden. So in a lot of ways, as this race begins to tighten, and it's going to tighten, not because Trump is great and Biden is terrible, because it always gets tight. The race is going to be tight. We can say that here, two full months before election day, it's gonna be a very close election. It's gonna come down to a few key states and it could be just as close as it was electorally in 2016, where a few hundred thousand votes here or there and it swung a couple states and swung the entire election. So I say all this to say that it feels like to beat a sitting president, you have to have a couple key ingredients. The first thing you have to have is a bad economy. Now, the Trump people will tell you it's not his fault, and maybe that's true, but the economy is not in a good spot right now. And so that we can check that box. You have to have a candidate that is perceived a presidential, um, a president running for re-election that seems to be a little bit out of touch. I think there is the chance that President Trump could be viewed that way over the next couple months as the campaign uh, really heats up. But the third ingredient missing is a transcendent candidate because the Democrats failed to produce that. The Democrats played it safe. And at the end of the day, I think this election, even if Biden ends up winning, I think it's gonna be a lot closer than maybe it should have been because the Democrats did not take a bold step in choosing their presidential candidate nominee. Now, what we're going to be hearing over the next couple of weeks, and I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to do, is you're going to hear that Kamala Harris is that transcendent candidate. So while maybe the top of the ticket is not transcendent, the first female vice president, man, that's enough history. We can vote for that. We can get excited about that. But then the question becomes this whole concept of a transitional candidate. Instead of a transcendent candidate, we got a transitional candidate in Joe Biden. A transition to what? And that is one thing that you heard again at the Republican convention is that what are they transitioning to? And that goes back to the concept of, hey, we're going through a tough time in America right now, but it's not as bad as they're trying to tell you it is. Whereas the Democrats and their doom and gloom convention, which again, I'm not saying is right or wrong, but that's what it was. The doom and gloom convention makes you coming out, come out and feel, well, well, if it's this bad, we better have a candidate that is up to the task. And in Joe Biden, I'm not sure that you've produced a candidate that is indicative of the picture that you've painted of America. So I'm going to finish this segment out by paraphrasing the newsroom. It's a show that was on HBO a few years ago, and if you have the opportunity to watch it, please do. Um, but 
If Democrats are so smart, why do they lose so always? Let's jump into some polling numbers. I previewed it last week. I teased it a few minutes ago. Uh, let's get into it. I think this is going to be where the majority of the podcast goes over the next couple of months um, leading up to Election Day. So let me start with this. It's hard to talk about maps and polls and numbers in a podcast setting. I don't want to just inundate you with so many numbers that your head is spinning and you don't get a lot of value out of what I'm saying. So I've got a format that I think I'm going to use uh, moving forward. We'll try it out today. I'd love any feedback that you possibly could give me, but it, I want to make sure that the way I kind of talk about the numbers still adds context and still adds value rather than just throwing out a bunch of percentages at you. Moving forward, as I've already said, 270towin.com is the website that I'm using. The research that I'm doing on there is not super complicated. When you go to their homepage and where I will finish every episode with between now and uh, election day is they project the race. They use the poll, the average polls of the last uh, 10 uh, polls in each state to project each state. They have different categories. We'll talk about all this here in a few minutes, but then they tell you this is where the race is today. And it's a very easy and visceral way to go and say, OK, where's the trends heading? How's it looking? I will just tell you, before the Democratic convention, Joe Biden was safely ahead. After the Democratic convention, the race tightened up dramatically. After the Republican convention, Joe Biden is safely ahead again. So I don't know what that says about this election, but uh, I think the early thing is whoever spoke last, that's who people don't like. And so it could be a situation where in this election cycle, less is more. Uh, but we'll see. Anyway, um, so the way I want to do this is I'm using the the poll averages as we dig into state by states. And I've got five or six states we're going to talk about today is just examples. And then as the race progresses, we'll kind of get into each states more specifically and, and kind of comparatively. But what we want to look at is the average. So I'll give you the poll average for each state, meaning over the last 10 polls taken in the state. What is the average telling us as far as where the race is right now? Now, let me be clear about the polls. 270towin.com is not doing any polls. Locally, in each state, there are different organizations and media outlets that will conduct these polls. And so as you dig into the last 10, what I'm looking for is I'll kind of give you, okay, here's the lay of the land. Who's been winning, who's losing as you go back over the last 10 polls. And then I'm going to try to give you in each one something to watch for. A trend that I see in the numbers, and we can kind of follow that and see if the trends continue or if there are dramatic shifts. When you really think about the election now, we've gotten through two conventions. You've got a pause over the next couple of weeks before the first debate. And then in the last 30, 35 days of the uh, campaign, You've got three presidential debates and a vice presidential debate. So that's four key pivot points that you might see throughout this time. Now, Joe Biden has said that starting next week after Labor Day, he is going to be out on the road campaigning uh, in a safe way. The president obviously has been holding you know, smaller rallies along the way. So as the campaign gets going, what you have to worry about, and I think it's maybe more important this year with these two candidates, is, is there a gaffe? whether it's Biden or whether it's Trump, you know, 
Trump likes to go off script. I told a friend the other day, I honestly believe that if President Trump could be disciplined in his speaking over the next 63 days, he would get reelected. The reality is he hasn't shown us anything in the last four years that makes you think or past that, frankly, in his entire public career. You haven't seen anything out of him that says that he could go out there and be disciplined when he's speaking to people. So I think it's very likely that rather than will there be a gaffe, it's going to be more how many gaffes do we get over the next couple of months with these two candidates. So. We're going to start close to home today as we're talking about the polls. We're going to start in Georgia. So the the poll average in Georgia right now is 46-46. The last 10 polls, Biden led in six, Trump led in three, and one was tied. Here's why we're starting with Georgia, because a mo the most recent poll that was put out uh, by Landmark Communications was released yesterday. Trump leads 48-41. I'm going to say that again. Trump leads 48-41. The previous landmark poll, which was from about three weeks ago, had it 47-45 in Trump's favor. Why it's important to compare poll to poll, not just comparing all the polls. That gives you, you know, a good view. But when you look at a single company or a single polling entity and you can compare the, their last few polls, it means that the methodology, we talked a lot about that last week, you know, what's their method? Is there a flaw in the method or whatever? If you're comparing poll to poll rather than comparing, excuse me, if you're comparing polls conducted by the same company, that is a little bit of a better indicator rather than, okay, Landmark does a poll and WSB does a poll and then, you know, Monmouth does a poll and you compare those three. Well, that's three different ways of polling, three different methodologies that could be used. When you compare one company to another company, you really start feeling like there's some kind of uh, trend that you can kind of establish. So I, I say all that, that the last landmark poll was on the 17th of August, and it had the race 47-42 Trump. So the interesting part is how dramatically the Biden number dropped. So Trump only went up one point. But Biden lost four points from the 817 poll to the poll that was uh, released just yesterday, which was September 1st. So that in a state like Georgia is a very significant drop. Now, I will say that none of the other polls, and there were a couple more polls taken yesterday, who that had Biden still either slightly in the lead or closer to Trump. But the landmark poll at least is worth looking at and thinking about, because if you see Georgia more comfortably move towards the numbers that it was, uh, that it had in 2016, well, that will save a lot of time and money for the Trump campaign, which is in all of these races. That's what we're really talking about. Time and money on the campaign trail. Where are you going to put your money for advertising? Where could you potentially see the candidate going and spending their time, whether it's the presidential candidate, vice presidential candidate, they, the, you know, do they send Melania Trump or do they send Miss um, Pence or do you, you know, wherever the races are close, candidates have to spend FaceTime and they have to spend big dollars to get on television and media there. So more and more, both candidates need their states to get bluer and redder, respectively, so they can really hone in and focus in on just a few states to try to flip 
to win the election. So we looked at Georgia a little bit. Let's move over to Michigan. So the average is 49-44 in favor of Joe Biden. You might be saying, okay, that's not close. What are we talking about? Well, Trump carried Michigan in 2016. And in a lot of ways, if you look at the 2016 map, you can boil it down to Pennsylvania, Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. So Trump didn't end up carrying Minnesota, but he did end up winning Wisconsin. And when you, you, you see how tight those races were, those were blue states. They were supposed to be blue states. Hillary was supposed to be very comfortable in those states, and that's why the election wasn't going to be close. And Trump was a lot stronger in all four of those states. And if you think about geographically, those, those states right there around the, uh, the Great Lakes region, middle America, you know, that is a huge pivot point for this election. So we're going to look at Michigan a little bit. Like I said, Trump carries it in 2016. The last 10, Biden leading in nine, Trump in one. All right. So you may still be asking yourself, so what's the point? So we're going to zero in on the public policy poll from 8-3. So August 3rd, 49-43 Trump, a very comfortable lead. The last poll that came out just yesterday, 48-44 Biden. So Biden was leading by six. It's got Biden leading by four. Still in a comfortable lead, still within the margin of error. But to me, if I were on either campaign at this point, I would be looking very, very hard at those states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Minnesota, because those were the bellwether states in the 2016 election that showed us, hey, something weird is happening. If Biden is able to continue leading five, six, seven points, it doesn't mean he's going to win. We established that last week. But at least you could feel more comfortable about it. Those states that kind of flipped on Hillary in 2016, if you see them continuing to narrow, I think that tells you a lot about how the campaign's going. Let's go to North Carolina. 47-47 is the average right now. That's another state that Trump took in 2016. In the last 10, Biden was leading in five, Trump was leading in four, and one was tied. The reason I bring this state up, close, 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 close. This one is really close. No poll by any organization has either candidate over 50% for the last uh, eight months. So since really since uh, Biden became a viable candidate at the beginning of the year, and it seemed like he may be the moderate alternative in the Democratic primary, no point did he poll more than 50% or has Trump polled more than 50% over Biden. Two polls were released yesterday. Both had it 49-47. Okay, so now we're starting to see some clarity. Not really, because the morning consultant poll had it 49-47 Biden, where East Carolina University published a poll that had it 49-47 for Trump. So North Carolina, while it may not be the biggest swing state on the board, as this race tightens, those electoral votes for North Carolina may end up being very, very important in this race. The last state we're going to look at today it might be a little bit of a surprise for Republicans, is Texas. The average right now is Trump leading 48-45. Um, the reason we're going to talk about Texas and look at Texas a little bit is because, just be very, very blunt about Texas. If Donald Trump loses Texas, he will lose the White House, and there is absolutely no path to the presidency 
for Donald Trump that does not include Texas. You could lose Florida and make it up other places. You could lose Michigan and make it up somewhere else. But you cannot lose Texas if you're a Republican with the way that the electoral map works itself right now. In the last 10, now, the difference, and I wanted, I felt like it was worth noting here, because the last 10 polls takes us all the way back to uh, July 12th. So there hadn't been a ton of polling done consistently, excuse me, consistently in Texas. But if you go back to the 12th of July, it's 5-5 in the last 10. Uh, Morning Consultant is the only one with more than one poll published in this time period. They've had three since the end of July, July 28th, and each poll has had Biden at 47%. The first one was in late July. It had Biden winning 47-45. The next one was in mid-August. It had Biden winning 47-46. The most recent poll published just yesterday has Trump winning 48-47. So when you're looking for trends in these polling numbers, that's the things you want to look at. Obviously, everybody gets enamored with how who's winning and by how much. But as we talked about last week, that's less important looking at a singular result or even an average of a result. Then that's less important than digging in and seeing maybe which way the race is going. Biden seems to be very comfortable at 47% in the morning consultant poll in Texas. So if Biden has 47%, that's a pretty strong number for a Democrat in Texas, honestly. But that race could also end up being 52-47, and then we could look back and say, yeah, it really wasn't that close to start with. The issue is Trump, 45, 46, 48. Trump is trending in the right direction, and he needs Texas. Now, I don't know if the campaign is actually worried about Texas. I don't know if they feel like this is an anomaly. That's the other piece that we have to put out there is that the campaigns have their own internal polling that they do um, that that they really use. You're not going to see them dramatically jumping at other people's polling. They're going to trust their internals first and then hope that the external polling done by these third-party companies and polling groups reflect back to them what their internal polling is telling them. So I'm not saying that Texas is in play, but if Texas does end up over the next two months being in play, it is a huge problem for the president for two primary reasons. One, he doesn't need to have to spend time in Texas worrying about Texas and locking down Texas. As I've already established, he cannot win the presidency without winning Texas, so he cannot ignore it if it's close. But more than anything, if you look at a state like Texas, and I would I would honestly put Georgia in the same category, that is still red. You know, the Democrats want to talk about how uh, these, you know, Georgia in particular is turning purple, and it is getting closer. I don't think anybody could deny the fact that it was a solidly red state during the George W. Bush era, and it has progressively gotten a little less red. But I think most Republicans would tell you, okay, hey, that's cool. It's not 58-42 anymore. It's 53-47. So, yes, I mean, it's closer to being kind of a a toss-up swing state, but 53-47 is still plenty good enough and still uh, red, still comfortably red. Uh, Democrats are trying to flip Georgia. They've been trying to flip Georgia for a long time. Both Obama elections 
Uh, Democrats thought they had a shot in Georgia. And as popular as President Obama was, he still lost Georgia both times. Circling back to Texas, if President Trump is close in Texas, and even if he ends up squeaking out a victory in Texas, I think we can kind of look at that and say, okay, Trump underperforming in these traditional Republican states is an issue, and it probably spells disaster for the White House because if he's not able to bank all of those quote-unquote red states, he it's probably unlikely that he's going to have a lot of success in the swing states. As I mentioned earlier, from now on, every episode will end in the same way. We're going to use 270win.com's uh, national poll, their map that they use to kind of just update you and tell you where we are. So basically, they, they designate it in kind of four different categories. They have what they call safe electoral points or ele electoral votes in the Electoral College. Safe, then they have likely, which is between safe and lean, which is their third. So lean is, it's very close, but that candidate is winning right now. Likely is, man, we feel pretty comfortable that this is where it's gonna go. So safe, likely, lean for either any particular candidate. And then toss-ups are ones that they're not willing to say are even leaning towards either candidate at this time. So. The breakdown right now has 183 electoral votes in the safe column for Joe Biden. Now, that is compared to only 88 votes in the safe column for Donald Trump. Now, I will say, just a little context here, any Democrat would probably be in a very similar position right now because Illinois, California, and New York are solidly Democrat states. There's no Republican uh, right now there's no Republican in this country that could even dream of carrying any one of those three states. And combined, those three states offer 104 electoral votes. So 183 safe for Biden, 88 safe for Trump. In the likely and lean combined category, 95 for Biden, 81 for Trump, which puts Biden just in safe, likely, and lean at 278, which would obviously be enough to win the White House. And Trump at 169 safe likely lean total uh with 91 being uh a toss-up as of and this th this was updated as of august 31st so digging into that just a little bit it means that right now joe biden is likely or leaning towards winning the white house and unseating donald trump as the president of the united states obviously those leans and likely votes i mean more of the leans those all include Pennsylvania, Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin, those states we were talking about a few minutes ago. It also includes Georgia being a toss-up, and Texas is a lean uh, for Trump. So that Texas uh, 38 electoral votes in Texas does uh, fall in the president's category under the likely lean category. So I give you this number not to say that this is my prediction or even that this is the website's prediction that it's 278 to 169 right now. I tell you that because that's how we're going to gauge over the next few weeks and months 
where the race is going. So uh, this is a very similar poll to what we saw before, or what I saw, excuse me, before the Democratic convention started. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, after the Democratic convention, the, the weekend between the two conventions, uh, it had tightened up significantly. After the Republican convention last week, we've seen it kind of go back to where it was before. So I feel like likely and lean and safe and all of this, I, I feel like this is probably fairly accurate right now. That Now, the issue is 278 is absolutely uh, either candidate right now would tell you they'll take 278 electoral votes because it wins the presidency. And all you need is 270. Now, most candidates would like to win with a mandate, which means winning with room to spare so you can come into office and really, you know, put your agenda before the Congress and feel like you have some reason and, and some legitimacy to push that agenda. But either candidate would take 278 right now. Uh, but that is a that is a very close win. OK, if it's 278, let's say the other 91, they won't all all the toss ups aren't going to go to a single candidate. It's very unlikely that would happen. But I mean, essentially, you're talking about one state. If, if 278 is the number of the winning candidate, there's North Carolina, there's um, Wisconsin, Minnesota, any of those states flipping would mean the other candidate wins. So 278 may sound like, hey, it's a win because on election night it's a win. But moving forward in the campaign, 278 is not super discouraging for Republicans. I think a lot of Republican strategists would look at that and say, as, as bad as the rhetoric and media coverage is around this president, the fact that Biden's not well into the 300s is, is a terrible uh, representation of Biden as a candidate. I think a lot of Democrats would look at that same number and say, hey, people don't like this president. Here we are two months out of Election Day. We haven't even campaigned hard yet, and we've already got enough votes or we're trending towards enough votes to win the presidency. So it will be interesting to track these numbers over the next couple of weeks. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode. It's 27 days until the first presidential debate on September 29th. It's 62 days until Election Day on November 3rd. Stay tuned.